Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Amy. It is really great to be back here. As she said, I was here about a dozen years ago, and I don't expect any of you to remember that, both because some of you weren't here then, but also because I'm sure it wasn't such a memorable sermon that you, you know, have thought about it every day for 12 years. But I do remember it, in, in part because, uh, as Amy said, I just had my first book come out. It was on this theme of thinking biblically about issues of immigration. Uh, and I think, I'm not sure of this, but I think that that was probably the first Sunday morning sermon that I ever delivered in my life. I don't know if they knew that when they asked me to come. But in the last dozen years, I've given some version of that sermon in probably a hundred or more churches around the country. And that's kind of my standard sermon, and I could probably do it in my sleep at this point. Uh, but a few years back, it was just before COVID, I was asked to speak at a church in Southern California, and so I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And I maybe should have asked more questions, but I presumed I would be doing my stock sermon, and I didn't prepare anything for it. And then about a week before, they sent me an email and said, we're really excited to have you, and our sermon series is, you know, going through this particular theme, and we would like you to preach on Matthew chapter 26. And particularly on this, the verse, uh, verse 11, Matthew 26, 11, where Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. And to be very honest, if I can be a little vulnerable, my first reaction reading that email was, I hate that verse, (laughs) which felt a little unholy because this is the word of God and the words of Jesus, and I probably shouldn't hate any part of the Bible. Uh, But if I could speak the way I teach my children to speak, I might say it's it's not not my favorite verse. (laughs) It's maybe my least favorite verse. Of course, my problem isn't necessarily with Jesus's words themselves, which just face value are pretty much true. Like there were poor people when Jesus said that, and there are still poor people, and there probably will still be poor people tomorrow. But what I would see is maybe a misinterpretation or misapplication of that statement, that the poor you will always have with you. Because, uh, you know, as you heard from Amy, I've worked for my whole career at World Relief. If you're not familiar with World Relief, we're a Christian ministry started almost 80 years ago by the National Association of Evangelicals. And we work in countries around the world and here in the U.S. with a mission statement of empowering the local church to serve the most vulnerable. So these issues of poverty, issues of migration, issues of injustice are very central to what we are as an organization. And so I probably take it a little bit sensitively when people might use these words of Jesus to imply that, well, the poor you always have with you, so don't waste your time on that. Uh, that, you know, it's sort of used to justify an ambivalence toward the poor and the marginalized, or to imply that it is futile to even try to address issues of poverty, since Jesus told us the poor would always be with us. Or maybe from those who've actually read the whole passage, uh, a little bit more careful exposition, they would say, you know, our attention and our resources should really be exclusively on worship and spiritual concerns, on honoring Jesus and not on caring for the physical needs of the vulnerable. So is that the right interpretation? Is that what this verse means? I want to look a little more in detail at this passage. And I won't reread the text that we just had read for us, but um, you know, most of you have probably encountered this story at some point. The basic point is Jesus praises this woman for honoring him by anointing him with this expensive perfume. And then he responds to this critique from some of the disciples who say, no, you should have used that to care for the poor. 
Now, it's notable, Jesus doesn't ever say the poor don't matter. But he, what he is saying is that these individuals who were physically present with him in this particular moment had this unique, fleeting opportunity to honor him in this extravagant way. And, they, and this woman made a good decision to do so. Because, of course, this is Matthew chapter 26. Within just a few pages, it will, later in that chapter, we're at the Last Supper. And then it's the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the resurrection and the ascension into heaven. There would not be much time to physically, tangibly honor Jesus in the way that this woman did. And she made the right choice. But what about that question about the poor? Well, there's a few other places in the scriptures that can help guide us in how we think about this. This particular story or version of it appears in, in other gospels as well. And we get one hint um, from the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 14, verse 7, um, we get this additional, uh, maybe an extended cut of Jesus' comments. In, Matthew, in Mark 14, 7, Jesus says, The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. So it's, it's pretty clear that Jesus is acknowledging the persistence of poverty and saying, and you should care for the poor. But in this moment, this woman made a good choice because I won't always be here. Or another, dynamic, another angle on the story is in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, where we learn another detail. You know, it tells us in Matthew that the disciples were upset about this. There was at least one particular disciple who was upset, and that was Judas. And we see that in John chapter 12. But we also learn that the motivation for Judas's concern wasn't actually his deep concern for the poor. Uh, his concern was that G Judas had this habit of, you know, he was sort of the treasurer among the disciples, and he would take some of the money out of the, you know, out of the collective purse. So when Judas is criticizing Jesus's action, it wasn't out of a concern for the poor. It was out of his own financial interests. And I think we want to be very careful as we look at Jesus's words not to uh, replicate Judas's model in raising a concern disingenuously. Because most of the time when we say, you know, the poor you'll always have with you, Jesus said, so we shouldn't be focused on caring for the poor. It's not because we're so focused on using our resources to honor Jesus. It's because we want to keep some of that money for ourselves to do other things. And in that way, we could unintentionally uh, actually follow Judas's path. One other piece of context that's really important when we, we read this story in Matthew 26 is, in my Bible at least, there's a little footnote after that passage in Matthew 26, 11, where Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. And it tells us to go see Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. You see, Jesus, these were his words, but he was citing back to uh, a part of the law that God had given to the people of Israel. And it gives us even more context here. And this is a, a different Bible translation, so slightly different words. But it says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother to the needy and to the poor in your land. So in the context, Jesus is citing back to a passage that his listeners would have recognized, where the point is, yes, poverty is persistent. The poor will always be with you in your land. And not, so you don't have to worry about this, but, and therefore, you will always have to be concerned about the poor. You will have to be open-handed and generous. And that's, of course, very consistent with the, the rest of the biblical witness on how we're taught to think about poverty, about the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized. I won't go through every one of those verses in the Old and New Testaments because we've got 
about 20 minutes left, not a semester. Um, but there's a lot we could go through there. But just to highlight a few themes, one is in the, book of the, the books of the law in Leviticus chapter 19. And God tells the people of Israel, he sets up a, a legal code, a system to ensure that the needs of these vulnerable groups of people could be provided for. And he ends that saying, do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. There was this gleaning system. So God tells uh, in an agrarian society where most people relied upon the land and agriculture for their sustenance, God kept in mind the people who, because they're poor, they're marginalized, they're widows, they're orphans, they're foreigners coming into Israel, weren't likely to be landowners and weren't likely to have access to those means of providing for their most basic needs. So he sets up a system to ensure that his people would provide for those who are marginalized. This carries on into the books of the prophets, when God speaks through prophets on multiple occasions to the leaders of Israel, and in some cases, leaders of, of neighboring countries, rebuking them for their in, unfaithfulness to God's command to care for the poor and the, the vulnerable. Um, I want to highlight one passage in Jeremiah chapter 22. Uh, God sends Jeremiah to a king of Israel. He says this, This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. And skipping a few verses, he goes on to tells this king, Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace, with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Pretty powerful passage where God sends uh, Jeremiah to this unjust king and reminds him of his own father who had been a fairly just king, King Josiah, who had cared for the poor, who had cared for the vulnerable, the needy, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. And God makes the, this care for the vulnerable central to the idea of seeking justice and of knowing him. So that's a few themes from the Old Testament. Of course, there are things in the Old Testament that most Christians do not believe are binding on us as New Testament Christians. So it might be a reasonable question, well, is, are these many commands of God to the people of Israel to care for the poor, do those carry on in the New Testament, or are those things that you know, somehow Jesus has invalidated and we don't have to worry about? Well, Jesus answers that, I think, pretty clearly, uh, among other places, when he's asked, well, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus refers back to the books of the law, to the command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the command from Leviticus chapter 19 to love your neighbor as yourself. And if he left at that, we might have a little wiggle room here. But the, the legal scholar in the story in Luke chapter 10 asks for some clarification. Okay, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' response is a story. It's the story we think of as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And most of you probably are familiar with that, that story, but suffice it to say, Jesus' story makes pretty clear that your neighbor, for all the people it might be, certainly could include a vulnerable traveler of a different ethnicity and a different religious tradition who's in need. 
Because that's the example that he gives in the Good Samaritan story. And it's pretty clear we don't get the option as Christians to narrowly define who our love for neighbor impacts. It's also worth noting that Jesus doesn't say love your neighbor with a little asterisk as long as it's completely safe to do so. In fact, if you think about that story of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan who stops on the side of a dangerous, crime-ridden road and helps someone to get help is not making the prudent choice from a human perspective. You know, most of us would probably tell our own loved ones, if you're on a dangerous road late at night, don't stop and linger. Get out of there as quickly as you can. Maybe call someone to get help for that person who's in need. Uh, But the Samaritan makes a choice that probably wasn't the safest decision. He stops. He puts himself at some risk to help a vulnerable neighbor who's in need. Uh, That, I think, was relevant to some of the pushback I know we get at World Relief when we talk about ministering to refugees or other immigrants. Uh, in the last few years in particular, we have a lot of questions from people like, well, you know, is it safe to welcome refugees? What if they could be terrorists? Or is it safe to welcome immigrants? What if they crossed the border and brought crime into our communities? Um, there are good answers to those questions, but fundamentally as Christians, uh, our call would be to love our neighbor even if there was some risk. Conveniently, there is actually very little risk, and it's worth knowing that. Um, so when we look at refugees and terrorism, Uh, Refugees are this subclass of all immigrants who are invited to the U.S. by our government because they have been determined to have fled a credible fear of of persecution for particular reasons. It's a very small share of the world's refugees who get selected to come to the United States in any given year. And according to the Heritage Foundation and others who've examined this governmental screening process, it is actually the most thorough vetting that our government has for any category of, of immigrant or visitor who comes into the United States. It has also been an incredibly effective process. Um, Since the Refugee Act was signed into law back in 1980, uh, there have been roughly three million refugees resettled to the United States, and not a single one has taken the life of an American citizen in a terrorist attack. Now, that's not to say that it's a perfect system or that we can't expect our government to always be improving that system, and of course they have been since 1980. But it is to say sometimes I think as Christians, we've so focused on the question of, is the government doing its job? and maybe not looking very hard for the answers, that we've forgotten to ask the question that was asked of Jesus, which is, who is my neighbor? And to be the people who care for those who are poor, who are vulnerable, who are fleeing persecution. Or someone might then say, okay, well, that's refugees who I just learned go through this uniquely thorough vetting process, but what about someone who just snuck into the country, crossed the border illegally, there was no inspection? Isn't that a concern? And I would say our view of World Relief has long been, that is a concern. And we have affirmed for a very long time that our government, which is, you know, has an obligation, has a a calling from God to maintain order and maintain security, um, should be ensuring that we have secure borders, should be doing whatever is possible, reasonably possible, to keep out anyone seeking to do harm. Uh, That is a fair expectation on our government. And we've advocated for that over the years. On the other hand, it's not particularly fair to presume that people who have come unlawfully, who've either crossed the border unlawfully or maybe overstayed a temporary visa, are disproportionately a threat to public safety. And I say that because we also have a lot of data on that question. Most of those people have been in the country for a decade or longer, so if their goal was to commit crime, they've had adequate time to do so. And for the most part, they've not done so. The best evidence we have for that is actually out of Texas, so that's not just a mistake to give you Texas stats, because I was in Texas a few weeks ago. Um, Texas happens to be the only state out of the 50 that tracks the immigration legal status of of felony convictions. 
It's also a pretty good state to look at because it's, uh, they have the larger number of undocumented, uh, unlawfully present immigrants than any other state besides California. Um, and what you'll see, I know you can't read the details of that graph, but the blue category, which is the top, is native-born U.S. citizens, which is my category. Uh, the middle category, red, is lawfully present immigrants. That would include anyone resettled as a refugee. And the bottom category, the green, is unlawfully present immigrants, those who either crossed the border unlawfully or overstayed a temporary visa. And in each of those categories of, of crime, uh, immigrants actually have lower rates of crime than native-born U.S. citizens. Now, I don't tell you that to convince you that you should be afraid of your U.S. citizen neighbors. <laughs> Just to say that it's not particularly rational to be uniquely afraid of your immigrant neighbors. But again, to go back to Jesus' words in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, our call is to love our neighbors, full stop, period, even if there was some risk. Our call is to love our neighbors. And Jesus clearly thinks of the poor, the vulnerable, in that category of our neighbors. And that carries on into other parts of the New Testament as well. Um, when there's a little bit of a conflict in the early church on that question of, well, how much of this law that God gave to the people of Israel is binding upon a Gentile follower of Jesus? And there's a bit of a debate over that. Uh, Paul confers with the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and they come to the conclusion. He reports on this in Galatians 2. He says, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So throughout the scriptures, it's pretty clear that God loves the poor. He calls his people to love the poor. Jesus in Matthew 26 is pretty clearly not saying the poor don't matter or that it's futile to care for our vulnerable neighbors. What Jesus is saying in this particular passage is that this woman had a unique fleeting opportunity to extravagantly honor Jesus in that moment because he would not be physically present with them forever. He was preparing, she was preparing him for burial. Within a few pages in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is dead. And a few pages more, he is risen and ascended into heaven and no longer with us in bodily form. So she had this unique opportunity to tangibly honor Jesus with this expensive perfume, and she made the right choice. But here's the really crazy thing. The chapter just before Matthew chapter 26, we actually see that we do still have an opportunity to extravagantly honor Jesus, albeit in a less tangible and sort of mystical way. So I want to read from Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put his sheep, the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you. And the king will answer them, Truly, I tell you, 
Whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. You did it for me. So Jesus is saying in this passage that there is a sense in which by feeding the hungry and visiting the prisoner, by caring for the sick and welcoming the stranger, we are doing so to him. Mother Teresa once described this as encountering Jesus in the distressing disguise of the poor. Now, this obviously is not quite as direct as having Jesus physically in front of to anoint with an expensive uh, perfume, but there is a real sense in which if we want to extravagantly honor Jesus, we can do so now, in 2022, because the poor are still among us in the form of the hungry, the sick, the prisoner, the immigrant, the refugee. I should also say that there's a bit of a scholarly debate uh, among biblical scholars over when Jesus says, so, you know, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, does that specifically mean fellow Christians who have been adopted into the family of God through Christ? Or is it more broad than that? Is this fellow brothers and sisters sharing humanity? They would, advocates of that view would point to a passage in, for example, Ephesians 4, where God is described as the one God and Father of all. I'm not going to settle that biblical dispute for you this morning. I think there's interesting um, points on both sides of that de- debate. But I would say, cer- certainly, even if you take the narrower view, this is really about fellow Christians, we can look to other passages like that command to love our neighbors to be clear that we should be concerned about the poor, regardless of whether they share our faith. And also, there are plenty of people in that category of vulnerable brothers and sisters in Christ around the world for whom we can extravagantly show the love of Jesus. So I want to close looking at just a few examples from, from the work that I get to do at World Relief uh, and my colleagues get to do, focused on what it looks like to love and honor Jesus in that unlikely disguise of the poor. There's a woman named Miriam. Miriam was born in Iran to a nominally Muslim family. But at some point, she heard the story of Jesus, and it just captured her imagination, and she wanted to learn more. She became a follower of Jesus. She went off to Turkey to study and be discipled went back to Iran, where she was trying to share her faith and share the good news of Jesus, which is not legal in Iran. And it got her into very serious trouble. She was imprisoned for about nine months, interrogated on a daily basis in a notorious prison, threatened. And ultimately, after a lot of prayer and a lot of international advocacy, Miriam was released. And she then fled the country as a refugee to Turkey, and eventually was resettled to the United States under the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. And she was met at the airport by staff and some church-based volunteers by World Relief in Atlanta, Georgia. Those volunteers had the opportunity to extravagantly love Miriam, showing her the welcome that they would want to show Jesus himself. Because in a sense, that's exactly what they were doing. I also think it's worth highlighting that one way we show love is by advocating. One of the reasons, in addition to prayer, certainly, that Miriam made it out of jail was that there was a lot of Christians in this country and in other countries pressuring their governments to pressure the government of Iran to make sure that she was not held there indefinitely. And that that diplomatic pressure eventually was part of why she was released. And one way that we can now fiercely love Jesus in the disguise of the poor and the vulnerable is to advocate for persecuted brothers and sisters who are kept out of the hope of refugee resettlement. You know, for many years, Iranian Christians were able to access safety and 
permanent refuge in the United States through the Refugee Resettlement Program. As recently as 2016, there was about 2,200 Iranian Christians resettled to the United States in a single year. And then refugee resettlement was almost entirely shut down. By 2018, there were seven Iranian Christians resettled to the United States. And that's rebounded very slightly, but we're still on track for maybe between 100 and 200, about a 90% decline still from where we were just in 2016, just from that particular country. If you look at persecuted Christians from other parts of the world, there's similar trends, declines of 90 to 95% from many countries where Christians are facing very severe persecution. Another example is uh, my colleague Abiyat. Abiyat uh, is originally from Ethiopia, but she leaves World Relief's work in South Sudan. Uh, if you've followed the situation in South Sudan, it's a country where most people profess to be followers of Jesus. In fact, that was part of the persecution that a lot of South Sudanese people faced from the government of, of what's now Sudan, nor the northern uh, Sudan, prior to independence in 2011. So South Sudan is actually the world's newest country. It's also the world's poorest country. And there's ongoing violence between different tribal groups and uh, incredible poverty and malnutrition. In fact, there's about 1.4 million children facing acute malnutrition in South Sudan, about 300,000 of whom are deemed to be at risk of starvation. Hundreds of thousands of South Sudanese people have been displaced by the violence, including about 100,000 who have fled their homes to live in a, an internationally protected camp setting called Bentu. And in that camp in Bentu, and in lots of other parts of South Sudan, Abiyat and her team, about 97% of whom are South Sudanese, are one of the primary healthcare providers, uh, working to care for these incredibly vulnerable people in one of the most vulnerable countries in the world, making sure that they have healthcare and adequate nutrition. And in caring for the sick and providing food for the hungry, Abiyat and her team and the local churches that they partner with are actually caring for Jesus. A third example, uh, Evelyn Mangum was a missionary kid in what's now Syria and Jordan. She came back to the United States to go to college, met her husband, uh, Grady, and they went together back to the mission field. They went to Vietnam in the 1940s, and they served there working with planting local churches and serving local churches for about 20 years. And they came back to the U.S. for a season, and they were in the United States in 1975 when Saigon fell. And in a situation that actually has a lot of historical parallels to what happened in Kabul, Afghanistan just a few months ago, where you had large numbers of people who had been associated with the U.S. side in a military conflict who were suddenly at incredible risk and had to flee. And Evelyn Grady, sitting in, upstate New, or in New York State, were receiving desperate phone calls and telegrams and letters from people whom they had known in Vietnam, basically pleading with them to help them get out and get to safety. And Evelyn and Grady did everything they could to get these Vietnamese refugees to the United States, working with the U.S. government and calling on basically every church that they'd ever worked with to support them as missionaries. When they ran out of churches in their own denomination, they went through the directory of the National Association of Evangelicals and just called random churches in various cities and said, can you help these families? They ended up resettling about 10,000 refugees in a single year. And then in 1979, they brought this effort under the auspices of World Relief. Uh, which was the, the NAE's humanitarian arm. And they led that program for the first decade of its existence. Since 1979, that program that they created has resettled more than 300,000 refugees. 
A few years back, I had the opportunity to interview Evelyn. At the time, she was in her 90s and living in Florida. And this was 2015 or 2016, probably, at a time when refugee resettlement had become very controversial among American Christians. And I, I asked her, what would, what would you advise the church in the U.S.? What would you say to them right now? And she came back to me with the words of Matthew 25. She says, well, respond to what Jesus said, that's all. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. A refugee, and you welcomed me. Well, Evelyn died last fall, one day away from her 99th birthday, and I had the privilege of being at her funeral. The Apostle Paul tells us that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord, which means that Evelyn now has the opportunity to praise Jesus directly in his presence, just as she did for decades by serving the least of these. Last story. Um, a few years back, there was a Mexican pastor. His name was Pastor Jose Antonio. This was 2016, and uh, there was a situation in Tijuana where he was pastoring at this little Baptist church. A lot of people, particularly from Haiti, had been coming to the U.S.-Mexico border seeking asylum. Seeking asylum is under U.S. law when uh, you basically claim to meet the definition of a refugee. You say, I'm fleeing a credible fear of persecution on account of one of these reasons, but you're not designated in your home country or abroad, you get to the United States and make that claim. And only if you can prove that, should you, under the law, are you allowed to stay. Well, a large number of Haitians showed up at the Tijuana border, and the U.S. government began a process of telling people, you're going to need to go and wait uh, back in Mexico for a chance to apply, which was a change in po policy. And that policy has since been expanded um, on a large scale. But these people were stuck in Tijuana with no place to go. So Pastor Jose said, well, we could convert our church sanctuary. It's a building not that different than this. They basically moved the chairs aside for most of the week and put out cots and sleeping bags. And as this situation lasted not for days and weeks, but months, they started building bunk beds. And soon it wasn't just people from Haiti, it was people from Central America, even some people from Africa and the Middle East. And they did this for years. And then COVID happened. And the U.S. government said, well, for public health reasons, we have to basically turn off our asylum system. We can't process asylum claims anymore. Uh, that's a policy, by the way, that's still being enforced for many people well more than two years into the COVID pandemic, although that's under a bit of debate right now. But for Pastor Jose, he didn't feel he had the opportunity to, or could as a Christian just say, well, sorry, there's a pandemic, you need to all leave. He continued to serve people who ended up waiting in some cases for years. And late in 2020, Pastor Jose caught COVID and he passed away. And his wife is continuing that ministry in this little church in Tijuana with some support from World Relief. But Pastor Jose knew what it meant to love his neighbors. He knew that poverty is persistent, that the poor would always be with you, which meant that there would always be people fleeing situations of extreme poverty and violence and oppression and persecution and looking for an opportunity in a place with more resources and more hope for safety. And he resolved to be open-handed to his brothers and sisters in need. He didn't have the opportunity to anoint Jesus' head with expensive perfume, but he knew that by giving food to the hungry and clothing to the naked and welcoming the stranger, he was actually doing so to Jesus himself. And again, Matthew 25 tells us what Jose heard. It's the same thing that Evelyn heard and what many others heard who have been faithfully and usually quietly caring for the poor and vulnerable among their neighbors. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So I want to close with that challenge to feed the hungry, to visit the prisoner, to welcome the stranger, to stand with the vulnerable. 
whether that's someone here in Bend or someone halfway around the world. There's lots of practical ways to do so. One thing that you could do is to stand with the vulnerable and love your neighbors, and in doing so, extravagantly show the love of Jesus is be a part of the path. The path is our community of people who sustain that work of world relief all over the world. You, wanna, you can scan that QR code or text the number there, the word PATH to 833-511-0491. You can, you know, I'll tell you what to do if you're interested. Maybe it's volunteering here in this community. There's a, a migrant farm worker community not far from here. There could be all sorts of opportunities. Maybe it's redirecting long-term what you do with your life to be standing with those who are vulnerable. Maybe it's advocacy, speaking against unjust policies that impact the poor, the refugee, the prisoner. But what my challenge to you is be to not get to the end of your life, whether that's at 98 or in your 50s or even before that, and to find that you've left this undone. Because poverty is persistent. The poor will always be among us. But the poor are also our neighbors whom God commands us to love. And when we show love for them, we're actually showing love for him. So I'll close as we think about encountering Jesus in the poor. We're going to transition to encountering Jesus at the table in communion. So I'll invite Amy to come up.